Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. This time on In the Know, I've got a personal hero, an absolute giant of leadership. Ronald Heifetz has been a professor at the Kennedy School for more than 30 years. After a very interesting journey that took him from medicine, neuroscience, surgery, to some of the hardest problems that leaders face. And he's been a huge inspiration for me. It's such a privilege to talk with him today. Uh, I don't know how this stuff works. I'm a generation or two ahead of you. So, so you just uh, link it to your website uh, through Notel's website and and then... Uh, roughly speaking, how, I mean, I think the analogy I would draw is to, uh, you know how Chomsky keeps clip files on everything and from time to time he writes an article or a book Uh and in his day the platform was like a column in the nation or a you know or or a book that he publishes in our day things are a little different and uh the podcasts get published by apple and anyone can download them anywhere in the world and listen to them and the truth of the content is it's not commercial these are not ads for anything but i think and and let's see if we get there as we're talking but the fox and the hedgehog or the problems of leadership or the crisis of overcoming or the existential threats of entrepreneurship or, you know, I mean, your idea of leadership and staying alive. I mean, those actually are the cosmic matters. Yes, for our political leaders and even in the family, but certainly in in business and in in all forms of undertaking, all venturing, where folks seek to change the world or have an impact on the world to make history instead of writing history. I'm I'm pretty worried about the world. I'm more worried than I used to be, you know. And not because of Trump. Uh, I've been worried before Trump. I certainly think he's very bad news and uh, symptom as well as now also a catalytic agent himself uh, for things getting worse. But Yeah, I mean, there's huge adaptive problems. I mean, it's technology and globalization, right? We have not adjusted to that. I think that uh, a, a very interesting and strange, completely uncoordinated coalition evolved about 20, 15 to 20 years ago that rendered all population policy and population thinking taboo. And it, it was all the way from the right, from a religious fundamentalist movement, the Catholic Church, to uh, people on the left who felt enormously sensitive to the accusations of racism by third world countries, who felt that uh, population was uh, that they were being told there's too many of us when consumption is is uh, so high in the West. A whole series of constituencies coalesced. The feminists in the human rights movement on the left enraged at some of the abominations that had taken place. But I think now we have are feeling the symptoms of populations that are beyond the caring capacity of families, of local economies, of school systems, and that it makes climate change much more difficult to address. It makes poverty more difficult to address, migrations, sex trafficking. I am absolutely gobsmacked that you're making this point. It is a completely original point. This is like a David Ricardo, Thomas Malthus point that you're making for the present day. Carrying capacity, yeah. Gaia hypothesis. Really? Wow. Well, it's not Gaia in the sense that I don't think the Earth is sort of that integrated a an ecosystem. But I think that a lot of the major problems that we're facing are a product of at least are amplified and accentuated and made a lot more problematic 
by population. Pandemics. You have all, you have a, all these teenage It's a gift of the 20th that are, century that people don't die. In a lot of countries, the birth rate is still very high. I mean, the population of Mexico has tripled in probably in 50 years. Philippines. I mean, you have countries now where it's I very hard. There are to take... some countries that have had aggressive strategies on population. The two well, you mentioned they got have slammed not. for it. Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, China got slammed. But if it hadn't been for China's one-child policy, there might be as many as 450 million more people in China. Then what? As it is, China has such a large population, 1.4 million or so, that it's under enormous pressure to produce energy and to produce jobs, and it makes it more aggressive. And even though they're way ahead on all sorts of alternative energy sources, to keep up, you know, they've got to generate. They've also got to burn a hell of a lot of coal, and they need resources from around the world. And they were more aggressive in taming population than... than uh, the left in India. Now, of course, yeah. I expected nothing less than a trenchant and original point of view. Uh, I did not expect a, a gloom, a trenchant and original point of view from you. I expected a gloom. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I, I'm worried. I mean, I, I, I think we need to re-legitimize thinking about population. We really need to re-legitimize family planning. And Let me take you, Professor Heifetz. But this is off the point of leadership. These are my own nightmares. And oh, and I want to talk about them. And, and however much time you have to yeah. spare in life, I, I will take it from you because I'm, I'm very sure I'll learn so much. Part of what I want to do, though, is investigate with you and take you know what you've given me this generous amount of time and investigate a handful of the topics that I think have been the most totemic in reorganizing the way I think about operating with other people. The Aristotelian okay, notion of politics. <clears throat> And it's work that I did not come across in my own education. It's too bad. I think it's probably in the canon now, but you have been developing it over these last 30 years, and it's made its way there. I suspect if I went back and and did my whole education again, I would be taking my own class at Columbia College and reading your book there, which is now possible, but maybe 20 years ago it wasn't. But these couple of books, which are the ones I've looked at most closely, and of course were introduced to me by some of your alumni of the leadership class at Kennedy, have had a colossal impact on me and the way I lead teams and lead companies and the way I think about what my work is. A handful of key ideas that I would like to uh, investigate with you. But I'd like to start with um, how you came to the topic. I mean, you came to the topic, I suppose, in the early 80s, and you were mentioning the idea of leadership through improvisation. And that was more or less the format of your investigation of this topic? It's a very interesting question how anybody comes to their life's work. And in my reflecting on it, I think there are multiple strata to in, in, that I've explored in, in understanding how I got to where I got. The first source of, of the huge break for me in deciding to leave medicine, I was uh, all set to train in my father's area of medicine, which was neurosurgery. I had accepted a residency at uh, Mount Sinai Hospital with one of the great neurosurgeons at the time, a wonderful man named Leonard Malis. But I, because of being delayed in, in deciding to do neurosurgery, I was forced to take a gap year after my internship. Did you have the hands for it? I mean, there's a sort of physical dimension, isn't there? People thought I did, you know, so... Uh, you never know mm-hmm. until you actually, you know, you never really know how good you are until you actually have to practice in an area. But people thought I 
it was going to be good. And my father was considered one of the 10 living masters of neurosurgery. So, you know, I had spent a lot of time working with my hands with him and seeing how he did things. And, and I grew up playing music with my two older brothers. One of them became a concert violinist, Daniel Heifetz. And my other brother became an oncologist, but he's a piano player. So you mentioned you know, that I in your book. I mean, your brother is a famous violinist. When I mention I, you I, to others, they yeah. ask, oh, do you mean the violinist? And I say, no, I mean the legendary professor of leadership. Yeah. Well, there were two great violinists named Heifetz. And probably the, there's Yasha Heifetz, who was a, my parents' generation, who we knew in growing up in California. In fact, Yasha Heifetz implored my brother Danny to study with him. But Danny decided instead to go to the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia and studied with uh, one of the great old masters, Ephraim Zimbalist, and then Ivan Galamian. Yeah, so it was a funny story of music and relationships. Um, we later found out that our, we thought that we were related to Yasha Heifetz, but it turns out Yasha Heifetz is from Lithuania, which we also thought we were from my father's family. But then we had Soviet relatives who we discovered in the 1970s, they got out of the Soviet Union, they ended up in Queens, New York, and looked us up. They had the same photograph of my grandparents as my father had of his, uh, of his family. And it turns out we weren't from Vilna, we were from Volinia, <laughs> which is actually oh. near Kiev, which is quite a bit south of Lithuania in uh, the Ukraine. So I need to pause you for one moment. Now, yeah. I cannot demonstrate my Ashkenazi Jewish lineage. However, the town that my family is from, near Mumbai, Pune, is one oh, yeah. of the gossiped about headquarters of the Lost Tribes. And there is a better than 10% <laughs> chance that I'm somewhere in the non-matrilineal descent of a Lost Hebraic <laughs> tribe. Number one. Number two, I mentioned already That's that wonderful. I grew up in Queens. There was a big Jewish community in, uh, in that region of India, particularly in Goa, but also Mumbai. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and now I mentioned already that I am from Queens, and perhaps yeah. you heard me say <laughs> that I went to the same college you went to, and I didn't yet say that I spent 15 years playing the violin, falling short oh, wow. of being invited to study wow. with any of the great wow. masters. And finally, may I say, my PhD in philosophy of mind is about many of the dry topics that the wet topics of your neurosurgery career may have taken you to. In fact, I even started <laughs> a company called Halo Neuroscience. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I saw that. That's fantastic. Oh, yeah. The level of sort of cosmic alignment here is powerful. Yeah. Well, I decided to leave medicine. I, I decided I wanted to do social policy and public problems because uh support myself during that gap year waiting for my neurosurgery to start. I went back to New York. I uh, went to study music uh, part-time at Juilliard and then took moonlighting jobs as a doctor because... Uh, I was licensed as a general practitioner, and I could take part-time jobs to support myself. And the first job I was able to get was at Rikers Island Prison in New York City. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was the doctor for the prison. It was an amazing experience. Oh, my uh, God. From four in the afternoon till eight in the morning, once a week, I was the doctor on call for the prison. I um, would take care of medical emergencies, which it turns out was, were rare because most people in Rikers Island are young. Unlike Paul Manafort, he's going to be conveniently but diverted. He will feel out of place on multiple dimensions, but also particularly age, I think. But most people were young, but what kept me up all night long 
were uh, routine physical examinations because inmates would come in from local jails by the busload all night long and they were entitled to a medical exam. And in the process of doing as many as 100 uh, medical exams all night long, the patterns of social illness were so striking. Everybody coming into the prison had a poor background and almost everybody was black or Hispanic. There were no firstborn sons from Greenwich, Connecticut or uh, Great Neck, Long Island coming into Rikers Island. And that made me rethink my career. I mean, I went to Columbia starting in 1969 and we were on strike three out of four spring times demonstrating against uh, the Vietnam War for civil rights. Were you part of one of yours that they captured low? library? That happened the year before I came. That happened the spring of 68. The years I was there, they only temporarily occupied buildings, but they didn't occupy buildings long enough to get evicted. But when I was 18 uh, or 17, the end of my junior year in high school, growing up in California, I was working on Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign and was at the Ambassador Hotel the night he got assassinated. Unbelievable. And then my father, who's a neurosurgeon, was called into the case. One of his friends was at the hospital with Senator Kennedy. And I arrived home to hear my father's you know, side of the story, which was the hopeless medical side of it. But politics was sort of in my blood. And so working in Rikers Island made me rethink my whole medical career. I began to think about how to be a doctor at the systemic level rather than one-on-one at the individual level. And so after about three months of nightmares, I finally decided to set myself free from the neurosurgery and explore other options. And that set me on a two-year exploration. But Rikers Island was the pivotal formative experience in reawakening my desire to find a way to work at the systems level rather than at the individual level. I then took another moonlighting job which also was a formative, the second major formative part of those years. I didn't anticipate it being formative. It was just another way to make a living while I was uh, thinking about things. But I I took a job at a place called the Life Extension Institute on the 36th or 37th floor. Can I just interrupt you, though? So the conversation, when you tell dad who's been grooming you to take over his franchise illustrious as it is yeah. that you're not going to do it yes that was a, that i mean very hard hmm. i think it took me three months to get to a decision because i knew that i had set my parents up they had not encouraged me to do neurosurgery my older brother was doing oncology they just wanted me to be happy and they were glad that medicine they thought medicine was a great profession but they didn't ever encourage me to do you know, surgery versus internal medicine or general medicine. So when I decided to do neurosurgery, I knew they would be excited and I knew that they would get invested, which of course they did. They were very excited. And therefore, I also knew when I decided, when I began to contemplate leaving it, that it was, that their disappointment was my fault and that their investment was, had been a joy to me. And it was, I think, part of the psychological benefit of going into neurosurgery was their excitement, my father's, you know, delight in working with me and in training me further and and my excitement to work with my father and get to do that together. So uh, it was very, very hard for three months leading up to the conversation that you're describing. 
Um, I used to have nightmares every night during, or every couple of nights during those three months. The same nightmare. I have this nightmare where I'd be either falling out of a skyscraper in New York City, or an airplane would break up in midair and I'd be falling through the sky. Oh dripping my the God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was terrifying. And, and you had to you had to turn to Freud's theory of dreams for interpreter, or it was self evident. I think it, <laughs> you it wasn't, up, you know. I, wasn't hard to figure out because I'd wake up in a cold sweat, you know, right before dying, and I just realized, you know, I just spent a lot of time contemplating what it would mean to me to give up all of the security, uh, all of the approval, the financial security profession that I knew was going to be interesting and rewarding and gratifying, you know, in a, in a meaningful sense. And to be giving that up for the wild blue yonder was uh, really scary. And I, and I spent a lot of time contemplating, contemplating those fears of those losses. Now, I, I tried to interject a little bit earlier, and I'll repeat it now. You were drafted to play for the Yankees. <laughs> More or less. And you walk uh-huh. out of training, spring training, to go and try to change the world because of experiences you had in a prison with a bunch of, you know, the worst elements of our society because you thought you could fix something that was causing their suffering. I mean, am I far wrong? I think it's right. I mean, I don't think I'd say it in such heroic ways in which you have. By then, I had learned particularly I had begun to learn at Columbia, that you can't measure good. And so I tried really hard to not tell myself a story that I was making a bigger difference in going after systemic issues or working social level problems. I told myself that it was just something that seemed to suit me, that was interesting to me, that I wanted to do. But I didn't push off I didn't use as a springboard any metric that this was going to be more valuable than that. Well, the norm comparison because, doesn't have to be there, but it can still be the personal quest or the hero's journey. Well, there was a personal quest, but I was also really aware that when you turn, when you save one person's life, as it says in uh, the Jewish tradition, you save the world. I didn't think that I was making more of a difference. I was just wanting to make a different kind of difference with the kind of work I was going to do than one-on-one doctoring. But I want to investigate this question, and I don't know how often you've been on the couch. I think you put others on the couch through your career. And, and it is germane to the, the deeper family of topics that I, that I hope we'll all well, I've been in a lot to. of therapy. I've, I've used therapists a lot for oh, lots, really? of different, in lots of different ways in my life. Well, I'll then you're honest. very, I mean, well, I mean, you seem very comfortable on the couch in that case, so then let me investigate this stuff. Because it's a topic that, it doesn't come up in the couple of big works that I've read by you. The core sort of ego and motivation of the leader who leads, who takes on the difficult challenges, puts themselves on the line where assassination is possible and every kind of obstacle is there and the responsibility of many ride on their shoulders. I mean, tell me how your experience and maybe how your research and your work with with leaders over the years has shed light on this moment when the hero sets out, so to speak. And I'm just borrowing that Joseph Campbell kind of, you know, narrative arc analogy to frame it a bit. I think that I want people, when I work with them, to throw themselves into their aspirations and yet still have their feet planted on the ground, seeing the dangers, 
looking around carefully, scanning the horizon and the environment around them, as I would say now, you know, doing a real audit of the ecosystem of the problem and an audit of the authority system of the problem, the various parties that have a stake in the problem and trying to understand more deeply the history of the problem and where people's perspectives are anchored. So, But do you I find want- it to be true? But do you find it to be true? I mean, you have counseled and trained perhaps, and of course, come to many leaders. Is this the origin point for many leaders? And what is? It depends on how you define leader. But if you define leadership as a practice like carpentry, some people do sometimes and nobody does it all the time. Carpenters go home and they are then, you know, friends, parents, volunteers, congregants, you know, they, so nobody's just one thing. And I think it's much more useful to view leadership as a practice that some of us do sometimes, some of us do it more often than others. And rather than as a sort of a, a stable set of personal characteristics. Yes. And, and this, of course, is one of your colossal contributions to the field, right? That leadership is an orientation. It's an activity. It's everywhere. It's every person with authority, without authority, of the family and yeah. the company and the military and the government. Yeah. Yes, absolutely true. But there still is a handful of, of features or characteristics that we cluster around folks with lots of authority, lots of ambition, lots of followership. And yeah. these leaders, when they set out, do you find that what, I mean, you set out to go do something on a journey. And actually, over quite some time, you've accumulated some followers, including myself. And I wonder if you have like a psychographic type of these characters, you know, before they set out of the grotto with Bilbo Baggins and Frodo on their journey to find the ring. I've worked with so many thousands of people over the last 35 years. People who immediately come to mind are people who've been prime ministers or presidents of countries who, who I've worked with some of whom I've worked with quite closely. And I think of the wellsprings of their aspiration and ambition. With For some people, it comes out of family. I think it often comes out of family. Either the, the carrying on of a, of a family's tradition of public service, of trying to do great things, of trying to make a historical difference, historical contribution. I'm thinking of George Papandreou, who I worked quite closely with and and who uh, I was with him uh, at one of the pivotal moments you're talking about when he became the foreign minister of Greece back in 1999. And he and I were in the summer of 98 when he was the alternate minister, which means it's not quite the same as deputy, the alternate minister and the foreign minister. He was about to become the full foreign minister. He was in charge of a whole region, which included Turkey. And, and through the crisis, were, I mean, on the other end of the crisis. This was before he became prime minister. We worked then again in 2009 through 11 when he was the prime minister through the economic crisis. So in a way, I was with him at both ends of that part of his public career when he was just setting off on, on a heroic quest. And then I was with him the night he resigned in order, quite heroically, actually, to try to preserve the extraordinary piece of diploma, diplomatic work he did in eliminating $100 billion of debt, of Greek debt, but in the process, his popularity going from 80% down to 20%. And to preserve it, he fell on his sword and agreed to resign. 
So I was with so family tradition, making history, saving your people yes. or your yes, yeah, tribe. and I I think that was a big part of it. His grandfather was prime minister and been called the old man of democracy in restoring democracy after a military regime. His father was prime minister, Andreas Papandreou. So I think George felt, you know, felt very much that this was a calling. Although, you know, neither of his two brothers went into politics uh, and neither did his sister. So why he was the one of the four, I'm not sure. You must also encounter, uh, I came up from the slums. I came up from the streets. I came from nothing. Yes, My journey absolutely. is to make it better for those right. who come after me. Right. Now, the point is that when I work with these people, depending on where they come from and what the wellsprings are, they need different kinds of advice because they have different vulnerabilities. The vulnerability of somebody who's carrying on a family legacy, everybody's carrying other people's water. The wellsprings to take the risks and put yourself out there in public life, the utter exhaustion, the personal costs in terms of family, time with your own children. People generally don't engage in these activities, these quite heroic activities, if they're not also carrying a lot of other people's water. And it may be the water of family that uh, on some level has, you know, um, tacitly appointed you to carry on the legacy. It might be the waters of the unresolved humiliations of your family and ancestors. This is that I came from the slums. Exactly, where you're going to rectify the injustice. You're going to show people that we are not the scum that you think we are. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So. If we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. Now, this is another big signal idea that I take from your work, that leadership isn't fun. People don't do it. It looks good. Its power looks good. But it's really hard. And in its worst cases, self-destruction or assassination are the outcome. Yes, it's really hard. You know, we can see this with our current president, how shocked he was to win that election. And... Having won the election, you go from campaign to governing, which is daily, it's a daily hard work. There's an enormous number of issues. There's a lot of people, a lot of different points of view. Only the toughest issues end up on your desk, and it takes an enormous amount of 
study and thought and reflection and concentration and focus and a lot of listening and then a lot of very frightening judgment, decisions that you have to make with high stakes and high uncertainty. And then you've got to make those and then you've got to live with the outcome. And the outcomes are too often tragic. And then you have to live with that, that you did the best job that you could, but you made, in retrospect, you made some tragic mistakes. And I want to ask you about President Obama. It is like virtually every time this man would open his mouth and speak paragraphs about the work of being president. Yes. I heard your ideas. Yes. I heard your ideas yes, about I, the hardest things come to my desk and, you know, it's never easy and, and all that. I don't know what acquaintance he might have had to my work. He certainly might have encountered it. He took one or two classes at the Kennedy School while I was teaching in the 90s when he was a student at the law school, Harvard Law School. But the only time I met him actually was my son. My son was a speechwriter in the White House, particularly primarily for Valerie Jarrett. And President Obama had this beautiful way of saying goodbye to his staff, which was to invite their families and uh, have them all come into the Oval Office, one family at a time, for a photograph and a handshake. And it was a very sweet experience. And that's the only time I actually met him was uh, because of my son's work. I just can't believe that there wasn't a very direct line. I mean, whether it's through your son or his exposure to the work, it's got to be. I mean, you would never have known about me if I hadn't called you up and asked you to have this discussion together. And I think the reach has been yes. enormous. Well, it certainly seemed that he was familiar because I did recognize a lot of his actions. His race speech in Philadelphia in 2008 is particularly and very from the beginning stood out in my mind as a speech in which he located people. That, that's my wife's term. I think she said it beautifully, uh, Catherine put it, uh, describing the way he located each key constituency in a larger public process, that uh, historical process of bringing justice to America. And, and Well, uh, a speech that and, did not and, provide and easy answers. Exactly. Didn't provide easy answers and began to give people back the work that ultimately only they can do. There is no government policy that can solve racism. Uh, it exists in the hearts and minds of people. And uh, you can create new boundary conditions through law and programs, but ultimately for people have to internalize the change. And that speech was a beautiful representation of framing the issues in a way that people could, you could begin to give that work back to people. Okay, so you've given me my opening to a topic I want to explore in a little bit more space. Adaptive problems and technical problems, race in America, gay rights in America, the status of women. What will happen to Greece after the crisis? The white working poor, um, America's position in the world, manual labor in the context of an increasingly automated manufacturing process, Detroit after the Japanese auto industry. I mean, all day long, you could tune into whatever is the, the worst, longest piece on NPR and every one of them is our society confronting some colossal and intractable problem where people yearn for a straightforward mountaintop thunderbolt type solution and are dissatisfied when leaders do not present it. And of course, you know, the instant history post-Obama was disappointment by many constituencies that he had not waved a magic wand and solved many. An adaptive problem versus a, a technical problem. My way of summarizing, I hope it, that's the way you talk about it. And, and, and I wonder if you could just lay out a little bit how you know you're in one or how you know you're in the other, and perhaps you'll get to having the people do the work. 
but also avoiding the recriminations that someone like a great president who tried to lead change on race, for example, or other topics. How do you do it better than even some of our greatest leaders have done it? Let me begin by uh, explaining this difference between technical and adaptive challenges. The most common source of failure that I've seen in my career is a diagnostic failure. When people get the problem wrong, then the solutions are going to be probably uh, wrong. And the most common diagnostic failure is that people treat what we could call adaptive challenges as if they were technical problems. They'll throw every kind of technical fix they have at a situation, and it doesn't really get at the underlying problem. So the problem persists, and it sometimes then generates crisis after crisis. People so a simple one, a simple one is doctor meets patient, patient's got some hard stuff, they're going to have to change diet, but they want a pill. Take this pill. That won't fix it. You got to change diet and exercise. Is that a nice simple example where the technical problem won't get to the root cause? Exactly. And you could even put the person through major heart surgery, but the the new plumbing to the heart is going to clog up again if the person doesn't change their own way of life. They're smoking and exercise and diet. Now, the world does have technical problems, but when you're the leader at the apex of a large organization, these technical problems will rarely find their way to you. Someone doesn't need you to proofread an email before it goes out. It's usually going to be the other end. Yeah, except most problems come bundled. So even the problems that are largely adaptive are partly technical. And unfortunately, they don't come on your desk with a little red flag that says, I'm technical. No, I'm adaptive. So you've got to do the diagnostic work of teasing apart a complex bundled problem into its technical components, which can be treated with authoritative expertise, drawing on the procedures and culture and norms and competencies that already exist and that are already in place. And you can drive people efficiently coordinating complex behavior towards a solution on that part of the problem that is amenable to expertise. Unfortunately, because a lot of problems are bundled, the technical parts are a lot more gratifying because you you can feel the energy. You can feel the, I've got this one handled. I know what to do. So people make the mistake of focusing on the part of the problem for which their competency is well-suited. And they ignore that And that's how you get to be leader, isn't it? You get to be leader by uh, swinging the hammer all day long and you earn the job of leader because you're a technical master in many cases. Exactly. That's how you gain authority is by being good at taking problems off people's shoulders and processing it according to your know-how and giving back to people then the solution. So it becomes complicated when you're the when you're in a high position of authority and people have entrusted you with solving problems. It becomes hard to say to people, listen, there are a lot of problems I can solve, but this is not one of them. We have pieces of the problem that we know how to solve, but there are large pieces of this problem that we can't solve in that kind of way. And that because these problems continue to lie in the hearts and minds of the people themselves who have the problem. People with the the problem are part of the problem. (laughs) So one of the diagnostic indicators of an adaptive problem is where you have to build new capacity. And that's what the word means in nature, where the organism to thrive in a changing environment has to build new capacity. And if it doesn't evolve new capacity, it's going to, it's at risk of perishing. You got to change. They've got to change. But the interesting thing about adaptive work in nature is that it has to change, but it also has to conserve. In nature, highly transformative change 
is highly conservative. And God didn't do zero-based budgeting. Nature evolves by building from what works already, and it conserves most of its current functionality. So, you know, you and I have 99%, approximately 99% of our DNA is identical to a chimpanzee. But we have extraordinary functional capacity and range compared to a chimpanzee. But it, it only took 1% change in the DNA to, to make that possible. You know, the, the, the chemistry that enables you and I to digest food and turn it into energy, it hasn't changed. The fundamentals of it haven't changed in 3 billion years, in more than 3 billion years. An optimistic Across thought. Am I meant to be um, leavened by this, that you don't have to change much to accomplish a lot? Yes, you are. The key strategic import of this insight is see, one of the big mistakes that people exercising leadership make is that they are so excited about this, the change they want to make that they scare people by only talking about the change and not talking about what isn't going to be changed. They don't contextualize the change by talking about all that will be conserved and honored from tradition, from values, from heritage, from identity. So that it, rather than saying it's on behalf of these fundamental orienting, anchoring sources of identity and value that we need to make these changes. People are willing to accept loss and make sacrifices if they see the reason why. People are even willing to send their children off to war. Not and, just and travel to a better place, but also protection of yeah. the sacred and the valuable. Right. To begin to understand that even transformative changes are highly conservative, one needs to anchor them and root them in uh, respect for that local culture, those people, that community. So that at the same right. time that you're challenging people sometimes hard, you're also honoring them and respecting them. Because you see, ultimately, you build a new capacity out of people and their new capacity. In adaptive problems, you can't put the patient to sleep and fix it for them. You can't just have experts sitting around Washington and coming up with a solution. The story is that we will go up the mountaintop together, and we are going to get there. This is exactly. the, the shared. That's right. And we're not going to get there if we don't get there. And there may be casualties along the way. Everybody may not make it. Somebody may, some people, you know, just may not have the adaptive capacity. It's too hard for them. Too much disloyalty. Too much loss. Okay, now a critical but, idea that I would like to introduce and, and have you develop. Because you spoke to the job of leader here the sort of motivating and animating and governing notions of, of sort of eternal values that we share and the only way to achieve them and protect them is to edit a bit, make some changes, perhaps not to minimize too much the transformation, but to say that it's in service of our greater aims that we share. Now, let the people do the work. Such a powerful line. It makes me sound lazy when I say it. <laughs> I never feel good uh, when I tell my people to do the work. They look at me like I'm insane. And I guess when the people themselves are part of the problem, I mean, who else can do it but them? How do you, so the, the logic I think is clear, but how, how, do you, how do you introduce such a mandate to, to people who feel unqualified and protected by you? They're, they live under your umbrella of orientation and security. 
you're supposed to know the answers, you're the technical leader that was able to solve all the problems, and, and now you've confronted an issue that is heretofore unseen, and now they have to do the work? There's a beautiful scene in the movie Apollo 13 where, I don't know, if it's the head of flight control, one of the people in charge pulls all the key engineers into a room. He says, these are the materials that exist on that spacecraft. You've got X number of hours to figure out what to do. What do we learn from that? You have to frame the issues. You have to say, here's the key data, here are the key constraints. You create a problem-solving environment, a holding environment that will hold people together through structure, through timing, through process, through defining the nature of the problem, raising the key questions, sometimes breaking the question down into smaller pieces that people are, can digest, and leading then over time because you're leading adaptive problem-solving processes that require time. Adaptive change is experimental. It's innovative work. You know, you try version 1.0, you learn from what's not working, and then you get to version 1.1 and 1.2, and you hope you can stay alive long enough and support the experiments long enough to keep working the issue, working the problem, until you get to a innovation that people can then implement because they've created the solution. They've lived the problem. The holding environment so, and the list you enumerated just following, those are the tools of the leader. Provide the space, tool. structure, spotlight, yeah. timing, process, definition of the problem. I mean, that's the speech in Philadelphia yeah. that Obama gave. He demonstrates key pieces of that. No, and then he made mistakes when he became president in the economic crisis and not doing enough of locating people in Unfortunately, I think being misled by some of his economic team to, in order to prime the pump by exaggerating his level of confidence about how fast it was going to take. Or undershooting, in fact, uh, the stimulus. I mean, yes, yeah, so I'm yes. so curious well, so, what your take so, is, because this so, is a guy who, who, who often, when he's intellectual and he's talking about what he aimed to do, he sounds so right, and then this is like the key mistake, right? A, a crisis wasted, yes. to borrow the term from uh, Reed Hunt, who was one of his very close advisors, just wrote a book about it. And so your advisors are crowding around you, you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders, the, it's, the world is in free fall, it's like an FDR-era crisis, and you just, you flinch? Yeah. Well, I don't think he flinched. I think he got seduced the way almost everybody does get seduced in a crisis. You want to overpromise. You want to minimize the pain. You know, the pressure to meet expectations, particularly exaggerated expectations, is overwhelming. And nearly everybody succumbs to them. Clinton's this won't be that bad. It'll be soon. Just trust me. Right. Now, he, he didn't quite say that, but he allowed his advisors to say, well, this is, we're going to hit bottom in 18 months, and unemployment will peak at whatever, some set number. I can't recall what right, the number like was. Seven, not nine or whatever. 7.8%, yeah. something like that. That's got to be the wrong move because as soon as you give people a hard number to fix on, both in terms of time and severity, they're going to hold you to that. And now you've pinned your credibility to that. And that, that those that year and a half happened to be right before the midterms. You know, it was devastating that he had So then not better to borrow from King, I don't know, is it a week before he was shot? We're going to get to the mountaintop. I have seen it. I may not the get night there. Before. The night before. The night before he was shot, he gave that speech. So better to borrow. Yes. Well, I think that he needed to have said, there is no textbook solution 
for solving this economic crisis. But what we do know is that compensating for the shortfall in spending by government spending is a way of diminishing the length and the severity of this crisis. Now, I don't know if this first stimulus package is going to be sufficient. We may have to come back for a second bite of the apple, you know, uh, um, nine to 10 months from now. What I can promise you is that we're working 24 hours a day, seven days a week to try to minimize the amount of disruption and pain. You know, and Biden tried to say that, but he was punished for it. He tried to say, look, at best, you know, there's a 30% chance that, that these policies aren't going to deliver all that we hope they will. And he So, he and so it, it, it all boils woodshed. down to, it, I mean, it, it, it just comes right back into your core lens. It was the temptation of the economic technocrat to promise exactly. easy remedy. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, the economic technocrat said, first thing you need to build up is confidence. So give people confidence so they start spending money again. Prime the economic pump by falsifying the confidence people should have. You know, Professor Hypes, I want to take you into a different direction, if you will yeah. allow me. Now, this is a puzzling dichotomy in a way to organize the world that, or the, the people of the world that you may or may not be familiar with. But it is a little mini sequence I've been on, and I'm speaking to a bunch of philosophers and decision theorists and other observers, some super forecasters and all these types, on an idea that I first learned about at Columbia College in the 90s when I was there in a paper by Isaiah Berlin that's about Tolstoy. And, um, you know, originally had a really boring name, but it got popular in, in latter years under the title, The Fox and the Hedgehog. It centers on a line from a Greek poet, and there's not a lot of lines from this guy, Archilochus. And the line is, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. That's the line. And Berlin takes it and launches off. He's like, well, Tolstoy. Tolstoy's a fox. He can nibble at every different level, whether he's talking about the Napoleonic campaigns or he's in the anteroom while the bell comes out to dance with the prince and then he's uh, swooping over metaphysics and then he's back into a dying man in a trench and by contrast the fox instead of the fox you might find hedgehogs you might find dante or dostoevsky these these big thinking idea drivers who are governed by powerful systems and operate inside them shakespeare was a fox but somewhere on the other extreme are um these uh, Marcel Proust and his nine novels about one topic that carried on forever. This type, um, and more recent thinkers like Gaddis at Yale, who's been writing on grand strategy, and you know Berlin raised Tolstoy on the topic, but yeah, Philip Tetlock at, at Penn and Wharton has been writing about judgments about future decision-making, and actually leaning in, in the direction that the fox who is more guarded, more careful, a sort of nibbler, a little bit of a dilettante, but someone who's loosely joining many different ideas, this is a better person for predicting the future, though an unpopular type of leader. The hedgehog who stands in the front of the big crowd raises their hand and says, we must march in this direction without any clear idea of which way to go. And the anecdote that uh, Tetlock shared with me is Eisenhower on the night before D-Day has in his back pocket. He's standing in front of his, his generals and uh, gives the speech that we must win, we will win. But in, in his back pocket is a folded letter that he has written and signed of resignation for the failure of the landing in Normandy. Now, these two character types, you know, it, sorted, it started perhaps a little bit as a fun parlor game. I think Berlin is said to have spent many evenings laughing and telling stories about his colleagues at Oxford and categorizing them this way or that way. And, and I don't know if philosophers did a lot of work on it, but they sort of surfaced it a bit. And now there is some popular interest in this notion that some folks are foxes and some are hedgehogs and some are on a spectrum. And 
you know, the hedgehog is this fearless leader, the system, the conviction, the never having any doubts. And then on the other side is the fox who's nibbling and uncertain. And they say it's 65% probability of this and of that. And I wonder if you've run across this idea and even if it's new to you, how it resonates with your experience with leaders. Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, James McGregor Burns, uh, who I knew quite well um, in the last maybe 15 years of his life because he wrote on leadership, started his career by writing a biography of of Franklin Roosevelt called The uh, Hedgehog and the Fox. Or I think that's what he called it. But anyway, oh, amazing. Metaphor and um, described him as a fox. But I have not used it in my own work much. So I wouldn't say that I have much skill or facility in categorizing people uh, too much. I think, in fact, I have a bit of my own resistance to categorizing people. Maybe it's because I've started off as a clinician rather than... Well, it's because you're a fox, Professor Hyde. I mean, that's (laughs) self-evident. Maybe it's because, well, certainly you are with all you've done, my God. But I'm always going into a situation asking, how can I help a person do better at what they're doing? So, yes, I imagine when I come across people who are more of one type than the other, I will try to help them compensate because there are probably liabilities and vulnerabilities at each end of the spectrum. The person who knows one thing deeply but analogizes too much about the world from that one deep area of expertise and then may presume to know and figure things out faster than they really can or or in a way that's exaggerated. So they may not ask all the naive questions that they should ask in order to engage in a more full, in a full diagnostic search process. So the, the, the grandiosity of, that can sometimes emerge from somebody who become a master of one thing is that they extrapolate and may not be good at going back to beginner's mind. You know, you spend a lot of time on the mind. There is a family of researchers, a bunch of these different psychometric frameworks. I spent yeah. some time at McKinsey and I think in business, this Myers-Briggs thing gets used a lot, even though it doesn't have a lot of experimental substantiation. And then another one called the Big Five, actually, which has some very durable characteristics that I think some folks would describe as naturalistically real, the Big Five. And I wonder if you have some handy diagnostics that help you differentiate the way people are different, or if you treat each, I mean, of course, as sort of counselor and a therapist and a clinician, like you can't, too many shortcuts. But how do you organize the world and how do you move quickly to uh, understand the ways that people are different, because they are, I, I think people are different in systematic and predictable ways. I mean, that's, I, I doubt you would disagree with that. No, I, I think that's true. Uh, and I have enormous respect for people who are really good at using instruments and as a basis for them uh, advising people. I tend to rely on interviewing people and talking with people and getting a sense of how they think about things. From my point of view, which is a focus on practices of leadership, I always start working with people from the outside in rather than from the inside out. So that I always want to be able to place the person in the context of the problematic situation they find themselves in. And to start then the inquiry by analyzing that problematic situation, facing the organization or that community, and then that person's location in that system. So that I start from the outside of understanding the problem context, the organizational context, 
and then that person's placement in the situation, their informal authority, their formal authority. And then I, I want to know the history of how they've acted in that situation and where are they stuck and what's maddening about the situation. And then I, we start to think about, well, what would be more optimal ways to operate in that environment? And at that point, I begin to discover the person's own, the impediments to that person's success, individual and unique tuning of the strings, the, you know, the heart strings of a person. What is it about their character, their personality, the balance of aspiration with ambition that is making it difficult for them to succeed in that context? I think there's a problem in the coaching industry of people who start, start with the, with the individual. Tell me your feelings. Be, yeah, because it's very easy to get lost inside a person. If you don't start with the problem context, you, you don't know what's relevant and where it's relevant to go inside a complex person. Is it relevant to inquire about their, you know, what's going on in their marriage or it's what's going on in their ethnicity? What's their political heritage? You know, what's their... And there's an element of uh, sort of quantum bias. I mean, there's this thing, the 4A effect where, I mean, I guess it was some Australian uh, psychologist that did uh, a research experiment on a a dozen or or two dozen people in the 1920s. Um, We had a bunch of people come in, answer a long and detailed survey, and every one of them looked at the exact same clipping from an astrology magazine. You are Mm -hmm. such and such kind of person. You worry about this. You worry about that. Every single person got the exact same clipping, and every single person gave it a super high rating. The weighted average was 4.6, 4.7, something like that. You give someone a suitably complex self-understanding with a scientific-like setting, and of course they say yes. And it's a wonderful way to just get it wrong, isn't it? Just to say, tell me your feelings and agree with everything they say. I think there's a huge market, particularly in the business community, for testing. Because I think there's a deep hunger that people have to try to understand who they are and how they can be more successful. And so there's a huge market for that, but I think a lot of that market is not being served very well because again, people start from the inside out rather than starting from the outside in. You gotta put a person in context before you can figure out what vulnerability they have in their own style or cognition or emotional predisposition. On this, of course, we are at odds. And I will have to come back to you after some time has passed because my business, entrepreneurship, is about creating systematic processes that address these seemingly bespoken, highly tailored, and infinitely precise personal judgments. Now, this, of course, is my business, and we have not solved this, nor have we solved it even on the personal level. I think you are one of the few practitioners on the planet that can give this type of advice. And I think as the Chinese saying goes, master finds you, you do not find the master. Well, I mean, because... I mean we, we may find that we are in conflict. We may find that we're not. I mean, I don't know enough about yet about your business logic, the logic to know if we're uh, just talking about different things or if we're actually... Oh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not close on solving the problem you described. Uh, it, it's just an ideology that uh, my tribe from Silicon Valley subscribes to, that all things bespoke, tailored, and handmade can somehow be organized and made systematic. Someday in the future, after I've thought some more about this topic, I will come to you. But I now have my last question for you. And this one, okay. I think it's about the move. I, I don't know. Do you call it the move? No. you have any idea what I'm talking uh, no. about? No, not yet. Well, I mean, it is signature move to enter a room of Harvard professors, Kennedy School students, political leaders, sit down and say nothing and just look around and just wait them out, that move. 
All right. So you want to know about how I teach? I want to know about that move, and you can get bigger than that, but I want to know about that move. I mean, people can watch it on YouTube, and it is uncomfortable to watch Angela Duckworth sitting there across the room from you. She even knew what was coming, and that room is squirming. What is it you are doing to these people? It's a, a particular exercise in getting people to identify the organizational dynamics or the social dynamics that are produced when authority no longer provides the usual authority functions. So by absenting myself as the authority figure expected to provide direction, protection, and order, by not doing that, even if people already are there for a joint purpose and sort of know what they're there to do, people go into a state of dependency and then disequilibrium. And once in a while, end up figuring out how to trust one another and stay focused on the collective problem, the collective task, and work on it. But very frequently, they malfunction. They lose sight of what they're trying to do, and they start grasping for anything to restore order and familiarity. And then they exhibit a host, whole host of characteristic uh, patterns, dynamics that are fairly predictable. And then if you stop the exercise and say, okay, let's debrief what just happened. There's an enormous amount that people can learn about the functions of authority, the pressures on people in positions of authority to maintain direction, protection, and order, to maintain a state of equilibrium, or to bring a state of disequilibrium back quickly into equilibrium. So a way of teaching those lessons and getting people to see them live in their own behavior. If you were providing instruction to a TA or another leader who needed to recreate the situation, what tips would you provide? I have tried it, I will confess. It takes a lot of self-control to sit still. You have to have a sense of what you're trying to do with it. I mean, it's just one exercise amongst many to try to use, the, for me, the classroom as a case in point to illustrate all sorts of organizational and political dynamics. There are a lot of other things where I just stop the action. I can say, well, uh, you know, Mary just said something that was seemed pretty relevant, but everybody ignored her. And 10 minutes later, David said the same thing and everybody paid attention. And he's going to walk away with the credit for his comment. Let's stop the action and ask what happened here. What's the dynamics of invisibility? And how does that happen? What's the differential diagnosis? What are the different possibilities? why that might have happened. And so uh, there are a whole host of dynamics in the classroom, conflict dynamics, role dynamics, gender, race dynamics, as well as authority dynamics that emerge in every actual social situation. The only difference in my classroom is that I stop the action, I push the pause button, and I can say, hey, let's just look at what just happened in here. Let's use it, what we just did, to illustrate some of the concepts I'm trying to teach you. And so one of the exercises is to sit down and to absent myself as the authority figure and allow the chaos to ensue. Sometimes somebody will stand up and frequently a a military officer or a former military officer will stand up in front of the class and try to take control and restore order. And generally they'll last about 10 minutes before the group then pulls them out, neutralizes them and gets them to sit back down. So, you know, these are all very important dynamics to debrief. 
that's why I use that exercise, how I use that exercise. You have another favorite? Favorite exercise? Well, yeah. I think my most favorite exercise is my music exercise. I spend three evenings where I get students to bring a poem or paragraph of prose. I coach one student at a time in front of the class of 110 people or so on how to, how to connect with people, how to stay present to people, how to stay with their audience, how to make each word count, how to allow for silence. Things I learned from my cello teacher, Piotr Gorski, when I was in his master class uh, in my year off in college. How to uh, inspire people by allowing yourself to be moved and worry less about polish than connection. And it's, it's quite difficult for people to do that. And then and I ask people to then to make up a song, improvise a song, because leadership is itself an improvisational process. And these Incredible. musical exercises help illustrate that improvisational experience, you know, stepping out into the void, not knowing what's going to be your next note, your next move, but staying in it. You know, you quoted Eisenhower. Eisenhower said he never could have gotten onto the beaches of Normandy without a plan. And they spent a year and a half planning. But he said the moment he hit the beach, he had to discard the plan because he knew that the battle would ensue, would ensue in unpredictable ways and that the paramount quality was adaptability. No plan survives contact with the enemy or uh, I guess as Mike Tyson has put in a lovely way. Yes. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. That certainly... (laughs) can describe our conversation here. I thought we were going to spend like 15 or 20 minutes learning about adaptive leadership. And I cannot believe your generosity in spending time talking with me about this family of ideas. It's and a pleasure. I'm off. It's really a pleasure. I hope someday we get to sit talk and talk more. I'd love to learn more about what you do and learn how to think philosophically from you. So you let me know when you're in Cambridge sometime and we'll sit down and talk. One more thing. One more thing. You and language. So I picked up an essay that you contributed to, um, a collection by a Stanford professor with a foreword, I guess, from like Sandra Day O'Connor or whatever. Unfortunately, Barbara something, I forget her name. And it was called Gender Inequality. Um, and you use a line in there. The, the sort of spirit of your contribution was um, you worry a little bit about the sort of adversarial situation. And, you know, like women are trying to correct a lot of things that men have been doing for a long time. But then you say, but we surely have much to teach each other. I mean, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, I mean, it's so well-balanced and it's so generous. And so this is the words you use and the words you choose. And, and really, in just in, in your other writing as well, I mean, I could uh, offend you by paraphrasing some of the other really beautiful lines. I mean, the dance floor and the balcony and, and just uh, like the vivid imagery. And, and uh, it's incredible. Thank you. I mean, it's music that's at the origin or it's, um, I mean, the lyricism of your writing on these very substantive and serious topics. I think it's so powerful. It's moving. I cried many times actually reading Leadership Without Easy Answers. I don't know if anyone's ever told you <laughs> about that. No, that's I mean, the thank physician with the patient. and appreciate that so much. I mean, where does it come from? And is it intentional? And is it a tool that you use at your disposal in this intentional way? Well, I don't write very easily. That's why I've written so little in 35 years. But that book took me 10 years. I wrote two versions of it and started all over again after five years on that last version that then took five years. <laughs> and, 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 and I vetted it widely at a lot of people. So I went over it over and over and over again. Editors helped. I, I think language matters a lot, but I don't think that it comes that naturally to me. But I learned how to read at Columbia. I grew up studying science and reading science books. I, I read maybe two novels before getting to Columbia and then 
as you know, the required curriculum forced me to study literature and it opened up a world to me. And so I became a comparative literature concentrate uh, as well as a pre-med student and studied poetry and literature and Indian literatures, Oriental literatures, as well as Western literature. And, and I learned about stories and words and the importance of detail. So, I mean, I think that's where it comes from in me. Thank you for the work yeah, in the music. Thanks. Thank you for being on uh, In The Know. Yeah. Take care. Thank you so much.